This podcast is made possible by Workiva and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Sean Quinn from Simpress, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 384. sort of relationship. You know, it's giving you something you didn't have before. Is that accurate, or how would you say it? Uh, I think it's a double-edged sword. Um, the challenge becomes that, uh, unlike uh, a product business, in order to uh, get realized revenue, you've got to sell new business and then have that new business implemented. So it's much more critical to make sure that new business is booked earlier in the year because uh, if it gets booked later in the year and there's some implementation lag to get it implemented, then uh, a lot smaller portion of that total annual recurring revenue is going to actually occur in the year of the booking. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Ed Jordan, CFO of Build Trust. Now, Ed has had multiple tours of duty as a CFO. However, Build Trust is his first inside the SAS arena. We'll ask Ed how the SaaS world is impacting his CFO mindset. We begin after these words from our sponsor. Workiva transforms the way people work through connected reporting and compliance. The facts are... A majority of senior accounting and finance professionals say their financial reporting involves a huge amount of manual work and is inherently error-prone, leading to risk. Risk that's intensified by new business complexities and the changing business climate. Link data elements, numbers, narrative, and calculations together everywhere you use them. When you change data at the source, it's changed at the destination. Gaining trust in your data and processes is that simple. Join over 3,500 customers who enjoy the benefits of using Workiva by connecting their organizations from record to report. Visit workiva.com slash CFO. CFO roles, but what do you think helped prepare you to first step in 
to a CFO role? Well, it's interesting, Jack. You know, my, my career started out in public accounting um, with one of the big firms um, back in the early 80s. And it was really unique because I got uh, exposure to probably a dozen to two dozen different entities during that period of time with different challenges. So I think the ability to kind of right out of the gate see different companies with different challenges got me thinking about the fact that uh, every company is different. And um, I've had a, a you know, 30-some-year career now uh, working for different types of companies with uh, different capital structures, different ownership structures, uh, different leadership styles. And I think just having the experience and being exposed to that um, has opened my eyes to, you know, uh, changes and possible alternatives in the way things are done in a, in a world that people might think is pretty mundane in terms of just kind of being the CFO with the green eye shade. So I would just say having had the experience and, and the overview of seeing multiple companies in different functional environments has been really helpful. Can I mention it was Deloitte, is that correct? Yeah, with predecessor to Deloitte, which was Touche Ross. Uh, well, back when there were one of the big eight firms, back when there were eight large accounting firms instead of four. It seems to me that you were somewhat of a uh, – you had an entrepreneurial mindset, though, from early on. Am I wrong, or why was that? Well, you know, I guess going back to the early days, I had always worked, you know, multiple jobs going through high school and college. Um, you know, was a paper boy, which I guess is the epitome of uh, entrepreneurism. Um at that early age. Um, but I really think a lot of my exposure, because I was based living in New Jersey but based out of New York, uh, a lot of my exposure was to smaller clients that happened to be physically located in New Jersey because it was just geographically uh, easier for me to be the person on the account. So I got to see a lot of small opportunities there. And then when I left public accounting, I, uh, I joined a firm, uh, a company that only had 13 employees at the time. So I kind of started right out of the gate in my non-public career uh, with a very small company. So uh, I grasped onto that. I loved really the environment of kind of a, a big, big, broad family feeling at the workplace, and um, I just kind of stuck with that um, for my career. Never really worked at a large company. But at the same time, you really, it appears as though you springboarded into the ranks of leadership at these entrepreneurial firms. I mean, it, it it looks as though you got there pretty swiftly in your career. How was that? Sure, Jack. Um, I, I got a very interesting opportunity once I left public accounting to join a, uh, a company that had only 13 employees, and there really wasn't a lot of focus in, within the organization around the finance group. Um, so they took a shot on me, and I took a shot on them, and came in in a controller role um, and spent a lot of time uh, talking to other controllers and SVPs of finance and uh, other institutions that I knew that I could use in a mentoring way. And I put my time in and kind of worked myself up the ranks there from controller to CFO in a, probably about a uh, right around a six- or seven-year period. Um, but a lot of our focus at that point was really uh, on building the business. So I had a lot of uh, other business leaders, the founders of the company, um, had had previous experience in an entrepreneurial environment, so I learned a lot from them. But it was really focused on uh, kind of listening, learning, uh, a little bit of the background that I'd gotten from my early days in public accounting, but really having some mentors that had done done the job that I that I was you know anticipating that I'd be moving into. Um, we ultimately became a public company, so I spent a lot of time early on 
um, getting close to some Wall Street analysts who could give me some perspective on uh, what was important to, to be coming out of a public company CFO, both from a, a research guidance point of view as well as kind of a predictability point of view. So really used a lot of external resources, people that were in, in that seat, um, as well as people that are tangential to that seat uh, to help me grow into that first CFO um, role. Do you remember the first time you spoke to the board? Uh, I do, as a matter of fact. Um, it was uh, it probably about <laughs> uh, it went it went relatively well. Um, I was fortunate uh, at the first company the board um, consisted only of one outside investor at the time. Uh, he was very accommodating and understanding of my situation, and I think he too wanted to help me grow through the process. Um, I spent a good deal of time um, with him, actually asking him about how other boards ran, what was in the board packages that he was expecting to see, and um, it really made a big uh, a big difference to me in terms of that portion of the journey. But um, I was fortunate to kind of uh, walk, crawl, then run in, in my relationships with, with larger boards. Um, but uh, he, he was very helpful and instrumental. Was that was your CFO allowing you on conference calls, or how did you get a look into that world? Because as a controller, sometimes it's so confining, and, and you know it's very difficult sometimes for the controller to to begin to you know step beyond that role. Yeah. So the reality of it is, is that for the first four or five years of our existence, we had no one sitting in the CFO seat. Um, we used our outside accountants really as both um, uh, the kind of wearing the CFO hat and our attorneys providing a lot of financial counsel to the company from a financing strategy point of view and some mentors that the, uh, the founders had as well. So I was fortunate in that, um, you know, the role was open, but it was available to me to grow into with a clear understanding that if I wasn't going to be able to grow into the role, um, then uh, we would certainly look to the outside to fill that role. So it was really important for me to spend a lot of time with a lot of external people that had had experience, um, both um, as a sitting CFO as well as folks that are, you know, tangential to the sitting CFO. So in, in the case of this Dialogic, the company I'm talking about, uh, in that case really the um, it was fortunate that the, the founding team, uh, I think, saw my abilities early on and said, hey, we're willing to let Ed focus on, on growing himself into that role. And uh, I mentioned what we're gonna we're gonna land on Bill Trust here. I promise. But uh, you, uh, before you arrive at Bill Trust, you also had a CEO tour of duty, which I always think is kind of interesting. Um, was this part of the plan? Tell us about how you moved into a CEO role. Yeah, it was a unique situation and probably one of the most uh, difficult um, activities I ever had to perform uh, in my working career. Uh, it was a smaller company. Uh, entrepreneur had founded it, started the company. Uh, I was brought in as, um, along with some new investors, uh, to help partner with him. Um, he had some relevant experience uh, in the company's business, uh, but the company was expanding into areas where he didn't have a lot of relevant experience. So they brought me in because I, I was focused there. It was a mobile marketing company, and he had a lot of marketing experience, not a lot of mobile experience. I had a you know, strong financial background, but also had spent a lot of time in the mobile space um, with my uh, time at Flareon. And um, it got to the point where um, 
it was coming pretty obvious that the CEO wasn't the right CEO for the company, and it was time to make a change. So um, the board had come to me and said, look, um, we really think we need to move in a different direction. You've done a great job here. We'd like you to step into that CEO seat um, and think about um, next steps for the company. Um, at that point, um, the decision I made uh, with the board was that you're probably better suited uh, to be sold to a larger organization. We were still relatively small at that time. Um, so I then focused my efforts on kind of keeping the business rolling, um, getting the performance in order so that we were, um, you know, well-focused and well-planned to be acquired and then really spent the better part of seven months, eight months trying to market the company and get it sold. Um, so I enjoyed my time. I, I feel like it was great learning experience. Um, certainly gave me enough, uh, enough color to it to realize that it's a very diff different job than the CFO job. Uh, I think I like the CFO job better, uh, but it was great experience for a short time, and uh, we had a pretty good outcome with the sale. Let me take a wild guess here and state that it was your, perhaps, skills as a communicator that helped give you an edge when it came uh, time for management uh, to fill the CEO role. Yeah, I think communicator was good, but I, I think one of the key things I did early on in my career, which I think is pretty critical to the CFO role, is to really understand the business and the products and the services that you're selling. And one of the things I think that I've um, kind of prided myself on over the years is really knowing the product as well as almost anybody in the organization, certainly as well as the, you know, the sales team, maybe not as well as the, the product management team, but knowing the product really, really well and knowing its applications and what the customer's pain points are and why the product or service solves, uh, relieves those pain points, so I think from a from an early early stage, I was always focused on the company and what its you know solutions were, and I think by being focused on that, it, it just gave me a greater awareness of customers, engineering and product organizations, sales teams. So I, I think that background is the background that really helped me, kind of in that situation, be ready to handle all the things that were thrown at me in the CEO role. Okay, so. Uh, I have to say, you've had a, a number of CFO tours of duty. You've been a CEO. You had another uh, senior management role as well before you land at Bill Trust. But as the door opens at Bill Trust and you step into the CFO role there, what is the type of role that you want to create for yourself here? Yeah, so the interesting thing about Bill Trust is we're, we're really, you know, I've been here about five years now, and we really were focused on kind of blazing a new trail. Um, I think if you look um, and in, in the marketplace, and you ask somebody, you know, who's the leading provider of outsourced, you know, automated payroll solutions? Uh, pretty much ADP jumps to everybody's mind. If not, paychecks is probably the second thing that they would say. Uh, if you ask the same question about automated invoice presentment, um, automated payments uh, for large businesses uh, in an outsourced or um, um, what we call payment cycle management solution, um, there's nobody that really jumps out. So the thing that attracted me to Bill Trust at the time was the fact that I saw the world moving to electronics. I knew as a consumer, you know, I was paying all my bills online. I was getting most of my bills online. And that, that the, uh, the, the business community really had, was lagging behind. People still using paper checks. Uh, people still printing and mailing invoices. And I said, wow, there, there's an opportunity here really to be the ADP of that space. And I think that's kind of the combined mission of the the senior team here at Bill Trust now 
is everybody has that focus to be kind of that leading provider uh, in, in what we call, yeah, the order to cash, in which the cash stays. So it's really critical for us to think about um, how we take paper out of the system, both in terms of presentment uh, of invoices and payments and cash application on the back end of it. Uh, but really, I think the thing that, that we're most excited about is the fact that we're going to be building something big here, um, and we would love to be, you know, viewed as, you know, the ADP of our space. Well, clearly the company's enjoyed some growth uh, during your tenure, but I wonder if you could uh, step back for us when you first arrived there and tell us what were those immediate priorities that you had uh, for a CFO. And towards the end of the interview, I get to ask you, looking forward, what are your priorities? But I have to believe when you first arrived, there are a couple of things you needed. Maybe you needed to fill a, you know, a key uh, member of the team, uh, you know, make a few hires. What what was your first set of priorities? Yeah, so the company um, has been around for 16 years. So I, uh, it, it pre-existed me, my arrival here by about 11 years. And the gentleman that I replaced was doing a phenomenal job here and really helped them build a great business up to a certain point. Um, I, I think there was a decision made to really top grade the management team to get folks that had more experience at a different part of the journey, right, the next 10 years, let's say, of the corporation's growth. So a lot of my focus was making sure that I was helping to design and build a foundation for growth uh, to really take the company into, you know, 100, 200, 300 million dollar range. And uh, a lot of that was around uh, policies, procedures, um, and um, a methodology for for scalability, so um, trying to put automation into our um, our processes. Uh, a lot of what we did was manual. Um, today we have, I would say, close to 90% of our accounting and finance processes um, are automated. We still have to do some manual work, but we're, we're always looking to improve those. Um, and additionally, I think it was putting the other the other mechanisms in place from a governance and controls point of view. Um, we're you know we're very focused on compliance. Um, we've created a very strong compliance focused organization, uh, which is critical for the business segment that we're in. Um, but really, I would say in general, it's it's building the foundation for growth and scalability, um, which is needed because you you know as you're growing your top line, you want to be able to um, leverage that top line growth over a much smaller you know, cost basis. Uh, rather than kind of growing things consistently. So automation and efficiency um, has really been one of my key focus here. And day one, um, my first mission really was to try and look at the organization and see how we can make it much more efficient. Can you tell us what are the key metrics that you uh, rely on today to know that the company is performing the way it should be? So our, our company focus here, and, and we, we really have – um, four key objectives, right? We want to we want to continue to grow fast. We want to grow fast profitably. Um, we want to keep our employees happy and keep our customers happy. So um, the, the key metrics we use are uh, annual recurring revenue. So um, we look to um, our opportunities. We're a SaaS-based business, so obviously um, recurring revenue is important to us. We have an extremely high customer retention rate. It's north of 98%. So we're really focused on new annual annual recurring revenue bookings and uh, the churn rate related to that. So we focus on how much new ARR we're signing. Um, we focus on making sure that uh, we're not churning more than, let's say, 2% uh, from a customer satisfaction point of view. Uh, and it's also really important for us to focus on how long does it take us 
to turn that contracted revenue uh, into actual revenue. So our implementation cycle is another uh, key metric for us um, in that piece of it. Curious, uh, as you uh, is this your was this your first SaaS company? Yes, this was actually my first SaaS company. I've been in uh, a multitude of products and services companies, primarily in the technology space, but this was the uh, the first one that had a SaaS component to it. And as you moved into this area, I'm wondering that that visibility into recurring revenues, that visibility into the customer sort of relationship, you know, it's giving you something you didn't have before. Is that accurate, or how would you say it? Um, I think it's a double-edged sword. Um, I think the interesting part of it is uh, if you've got a high uh, retention rate, you know, low churn rate, then you've got great visibility into your revenue for the uh, next several quarters, right? It, it's pretty much right in front of you. It's not like selling widgets where you got to go out and sell uh, 10,000 more widgets this month or uh, 50,000 more in the quarter. So going into, you know, a uh, fiscal year, we've got great visibility and kind of like a baseline revenue case that really, unless, I mean, it's almost it's almost impossible for that, you know, that base case not to exist as long as you're in control of your churn rate. Um, the challenge becomes that uh, unlike uh, a product business, um, in order to uh, get realized revenue, you've got to sell new business and then have that new business implemented. So it's much more critical to make sure that new business is booked earlier in the year because uh, if it gets booked later in the year and there's some implementation lag to get it implemented, then a, a lot smaller portion of that total annual recurring revenue is going to actually occur in the year of the booking. So it, it, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Great visibility going into the year, but you're also very, very focused on getting bookings and implementations moving earlier in, into the year because unlike a product space, you can't just sell more on December 31st and make your number for the year because, you know, a deal you sign on December 31st is never going to turn into revenue until sometime into the subsequent year. We always like to ask for a finance strategic moment. And uh, by that, uh, we've also called it an aha moment where sometime during the course of your finance career, it may or may not have been at Bill Trust, you, uh, given your lines of sight into the organization, you were able to see an opportunity or a risk. You were able to change the direction of the company in some fashion, perhaps, in response to that. Uh, does anything come to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the finance strategic moment for me was that when you're really dealing with technology companies, um, a lot of what you're counting on comes from people that are not focused financially. They're great technologists, great technicians. And, and the aha moment for me was in order to really make it work successfully for the, at the corporate level, you need to make sure that you have some focus at the departmental level with enough detail. So what, what I've done here and I've done in past careers, which I think has been extremely helpful, is we have a formal liaison between the finance department and the functional units, let's just say the product organization. So there's a gentleman on my team who's, you know, dotted line to the, the product organization, uh, solid line to me, but he lives and breathes and he's the right-hand person for the head of product. Um, in terms of helping them prepare their budgets, understanding uh, their budget to actual results. So the, the learning for me was you, you can't really try and expect the folks that are, are, are specialized in, in certainly in the development technology world to fully understand the intricacies of the finance organization and budgeting and planning. So 
we've been very focused on making sure we've given them a resource that's at their full disposal to help them through the process. And it's worked extremely well here, extremely well in the past. Um, we focus a lot on product line profitability, and, and they help drive that and, and the analysis of that. Um, and they're really almost like um, junior controllers for each of those departments, um, but ultimately reporting back into the finance organization. What would their title be? Um, so we have a we have a, a financial planning and analysis group here. So um, you know, in our current environment, they are financial analysts, but with you know, financial analysts responsible for the sales group, financial analysts responsible for the the product group. Um, in, in past organizations, we've actually called them the you know the the, en- the controller of the engineering group, controller of the product group, controller of the sales group. So it, it's varied, but. Um, either departmental controllers uh, or, in our case, they're analysts that are just uh, focused on those functional areas. We've had this discussion with other finance leaders where they talk about embedding their people in different parts of the organization. This this is just that, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly what it is. Um, yeah, we run a lot of tools. We're very automated. We, we don't expect people outside of our organization to understand how those tools work or how they're, how they're manipulated. So they basically use a common set of tools and we deploy them into those functional groups, and they are embedded and deployed into those functional groups. So when do you bring – do you bring those junior controllers together? Just curious how you communicate as a group. Yeah, so they have a, they have a, they have a leader. Uh, he's the head of financial planning and analysis. He's the one that's ultimately responsible for delivering our budgets and our forecasts. Um, so they meet on a regular basis. They actually sit in an open office environment uh, in kind of a um, – um, bullpen-type setting where they're communicating amongst themselves and sharing thoughts and ideas. Um, we have a very kind of open uh, environment here in terms of communication, so um, I bring them in to um, as many discussions as I can uh, at the highest level. Every one of them has visibility up to the CEO level, and it would not be uncommon for our CEO who has a, might have a question to go directly to them. So we make sure that they're, um, they have visibility and uh, responsibility at the highest level. Curious, uh, was this a structure you had at your earlier companies and you refined here, or was this a structure you had to help the management team, the CEO, and and, and the other leaders uh, to adopt? Yeah, so um, it actually started early on in my career at Dialogic. Um, We probably put it into place probably four or five years into my tenure there. So, um, yeah, I'm guessing right around 1990. Um, and it worked well, and, uh, and the, you know, the real aha moment is I'm sitting to our director of uh, engineering development realizing that he's a brilliant guy but just doesn't really know how to put a spreadsheet together and doesn't really understand what the results of the spreadsheet are. So it just made sense for us to have somebody almost decode that process for him. So it, it, it started early on. Um, I've used it consistently throughout. Um, and, you know, coming here to Bill Trust, um, it was an environment that I think was um, – searching for a solution like that. The company had never really been focused on product line profitability, so that helped a little bit that we started to drive it with the concept of let's start thinking about it from a product line point of view. Great, now we need to do things that are tied to that, like time tracking and analysis of um, results of new bookings, revenue by product. So I think out of necessity, um, we were able to start with a little bit of understanding of product line profitability, realize that there's work that needs to be done, it just doesn't happen, and then by having an available resource to assign to them that they could trust in and that they knew would 
um, represent them, you know, um, as if they were in the room themselves. Um, and any financial discussions or resource planning discussions, uh, I think, re really worked out well. But it, it really is a function of people starting to think about the business from a product organization point of view and then expanding that to, you know, okay, how much of this product was sold? What does the sales organization say about how they're incented to sell this product versus another product or this service versus another service? So uh, I think it just evolves over time, but I think you just need to have the baseline tools and skill set to get it started. Yeah, I would imagine part of the challenge is getting the confidence of the, uh, whether it's the engineering team or the part of the organization where the finance person is going to be, ease any concerns that finance is trying to uh, in some way surveil or control the situation rather than partner. Yeah, there's definitely a huge trust component to it. Um, and, and again, I think you know, everybody understands what the common goal is. Uh, so I think as long as everybody's driving to the same common goal and they understand that these folks are enablers, not they're not there to stifle um, activities or growth, albeit you know they are focused on making sure that we're spending money wisely, which is one of our um, kind of key mantras here. Um, I think there's a huge amount of trust and I think there's a huge amount of relief that comes from having somebody um, with the finance skill sets um, attached kind of at the hip with the functional leaders. I think they, they view it as a, a way for them to understand their own activities better. Thought Leader listeners will shortly be entering the mentoring round with Ed Jordan, plus a number of questions about the workforce and Ed's CFO mindset after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. We're sort of talking about talent now, but I want to uh, touch more broadly on the talent economy in regards to uh, Bill Trust's workforce. So what would you tell us about your own mindset when it comes to talent, and finding people, and, and uh, helping Bill Trust be strategic? What role does a CFO have in that, really? Anything? Yeah, I think it really depends. So throughout my career, I've had the HR organization reporting directly into me, so I've had a tremendous amount of exposure to HR activities. Um, so uh, it, it's, it, look, it's really critical, and it, it comes down to some pretty basic concepts, right? You've got to hire the right people to start with, and then you've got to uh, onboard them and train them appropriately. So those require resources. Um, so we're very focused on the hiring process here. We actually uh, made a decision probably about four years ago to bring in our own in-house um, recruiting and sourcing teams. So we don't use a lot of outside um, recruiters for that. We feel they understand our business better, know exactly what types of people and individuals and cultures work well here. So um, we've invested heavily in that. But I think the reality of that is that that reaps, you know, immediate financial um, rewards and that the cost of having an in-house team 
for a company that's growing like we are who might be hiring 100 people a year, uh, it's a much more economical way to hire them. Um, we also have, a, uh, within the HR group, our own uh, training and education team that does both training for our employees and training for our customers. So by doing training for both, um, we've been able to leverage kind of a, a broader group of talent um, and skills and tools uh, into an onboarding exercise that hopefully makes our, our employees um, more valuable to us sooner in their, um, their life cycle with us uh, than later. So um, we're very focused on that. Uh, in fact, this year, one of the major initiatives that uh, we have in our HR group is to really improve onboarding throughout um, all of our departments. So whether it be a salesperson, uh, a, a new developer, uh, somebody in the marketing department, uh, helping them not just understand the company well, but understanding their specific role and job well. So uh, you know, wearing my CFO hat, there's a cost to it, um, but we like to think about it when we're in the budgeting process of allocating a certain number of dollars per head for training, and um, we know that we get uh, a great return on that, uh, especially if um, we're able to retain our employees. So culture is an important part of it as well because you want to be able to you know, make the investment and retain the investment. Um, and hiring on the front end is, is crucial because you really, you know, there, there's really nothing more costly than making a bad hire that you've got to rehire. I, I, I would imagine you do, but uh, like employee turnover, these are all numbers that are closely watched and monitored. Yeah, so we um, we run uh, probably on I would say forty five. Let's call them metrics rather than KPIs, key performance indicators. I think 45 is too long for the key ones, but uh, each organization has a set of metrics, and we look at uh, turnover statistics, voluntary and involuntary um, turnover. Uh, we look at training hours per employee. Uh, we look at cost to hire, time to hire. We look at positions that have been open uh, for more than 90 days, and maybe we'll uh, impart a different strategy for those. So you know, each of our organizations probably has five or six key metrics that that we use in, in, in the HR group, those are the critical ones. And how large is Build Trust's workforce today? Uh, we've got about 450 employees. Ed, thank you for allowing me to slip in uh, a few extra questions uh, to you there. Uh, we're going to jump into the mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions, uh, beginning with what's exciting you about finance and business today? Uh, the really exciting thing for me right now is we're seeing a lot of automation in the finance world. And I think it's changing the role of the CFO. Uh, it's forcing CFOs to be smarter about how they do things and efficiencies in what they do. Uh, certainly cloud and cloud computing has been really uh, instrumental to the finance organization. Um, I think, um, you know, artificial intelligence, RPA, is stuff, stuff that we've really started to focus on here as well in terms of, you know, a lot of tasks that were manual that we now can do in an automated way. So that, that's really kind of, I think, the, the exciting part of being in a finance world today is that we're just seeing automation take over a lot of it. So uh, we covered your, the early part of your CFO career, but uh, when you first stepped in to a CFO role, what was that one piece of advice that you wish someone gave you? I think the most important thing wearing the CFO side is you you, you really are shepherding um, a lot of important initiatives. It's the financial wherewithal of the corporation. It's 
uh, confidence with the board of directors, his confidence with the management team. So the one thing that, that I kind of live by every day is I, I love to be able to go home every night and go to sleep and not have to worry about stuff. So make decisions during the day that you know are going to let you sleep well at night. And I think that's um, part of what I've, I've done to try and live my life, um, you know, in a happy, cheerful manner. And I think it's critical when you start making decisions that you're um, really worried about or second-guessing, it's, it's not good for anybody involved. So make sure you get a good night's sleep and uh, that your decisions during the day help you do that. Do you have a personal habit or routine that you believe has contributed to your professional success? Personal habit or routine? No, I don't think so. You know, the, the role of a CFO has really um, changed over time, and there's just so many different things being so many different, pointing so many different ways. Um, the one thing I do is I keep a pretty good to-do list. You know, that I think that's critical, whether it's on a piece of paper or on an automated solution. But I, I think having a to-do list and making sure you put stuff on there and prioritize it, that's pretty critical because, you know, it is a, an ever-changing world, a lot of changing priorities. But beyond that, that's pretty much my only um, routine, thing, routine thing that I do. Okay, our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? So um, here at Bill Trust, kind of our focus over the next 12 months is really to um, uh, improve our profitability. So we're very focused right now on taking uh, a new look at um, all of our existing activities to figure out, you know, over a 16-year period, and we've been a company in business for 16 years now, um, there's lots of things that we've done and we continue to do, and the, the real focus for the next 12 months is to start to really take a look at those and see which ones we shouldn't be doing. Uh, maybe we're doing two things that are similar where we're paying for two different services and two different organizations where there's some economies of scale by combining them. So our, our real focus is, is kind of our own internal kind of housekeeping uh, at this point to take a look at where we're spending money and how we're spending money to try and uh, make sure we're being as efficient as possible in there. Um, and, and with that, um, you know, we've talked about it a bit through the, through the podcast is, you know, really trying to automate um, a lot of procedures that were manually done in the past. It helps improve uh, upon the, the cost of providing that solution. It helps in terms of um, reducing the number of errors and quality of the product that we're putting out. Putting out, And it also really helps um, in, in terms of really having backup and support. You know, somebody's doing a manual operation and, um, you know, they're, they're on vacation or out sick. You know, you really got to scramble to fill that void. If it's automated and the process um, is well documented, then you really can have almost anybody jump in and solve that. So um, I think focusing on efficiency in terms of our, our OPEX spend and really trying to continue to automate the last, you know, not 10 to 15% of what we do are really our focuses. Thank you for joining us on CFO Policy. Thank you, Jack. Appreciate it being on. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at CFOThoughtLeader.com.